Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Ernesto Tagworker, who is the founder and CTO of Umbu Labs, open source maintainer, writer, and speaker from Argentina, who now calls Philadelphia his home. Ernesto Tagworker, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Yeah, it's so great to be here. I've been listening to the podcast since you started, and I admire a lot of the guests you've had at the in the podcast. So I'm honored and thrilled to be here. Welcome to the club. So, given your experience in our industry, what do you believe are a few common traits that a software application's code base is being well maintained? That is a great question, and we actually get to evaluate that all the time. Every time we need to assess whether we want to take on a project or not, we look at the code base and we're like, okay, yes, we are going to maintain this project or no. You know, like this is obviously a code base that has no love and there's something going on here that's fishy. So I think some things that we look at are code coverage first and foremost. We want to maintain code that has some automated tests. We also want to maintain code that is simple and it's not super complex. And finally, I think we look at the architecture, whether things are in the right places and have been well architected. Yeah, that's usually what we look at before we take on any projects. That kind of speaks a little bit to my next question. How do you and your team define technical debt? Yeah, so technical debt, at least in the projects that we work on, usually shows up a lot as in outdated dependencies. We work a lot on upgrade projects. So when clients reach out to us, they are in trouble because they haven't had the time to upgrade their dependencies. And that's the first thing that they mention. It's like, well, we want to upgrade Rails from 4.2 to 5.0, but we just don't have the time. We have the money, we have the budget, but we can't really dedicate our team to do that sort of work. That's one of them. And the other form is in, Fred Brooks called it a tar pit, right? So... The tar pit means that projects are stuck in this sticky, sticky tar. And, you know, even the small changes take forever to ship. And, you know, you start working on the project and you say, yeah, you know, this small change, this small feature, I can ship it in one day. And then you start working on it and a week goes by, two weeks go by and you're like, what is going on? Like I touched this and I try to add this feature and it's just breaking 10 different things. So I guess it also shows up when the development team's velocity starts dragging. Can you remind me again where the tar pit phrase comes from? Yeah, yeah. It's one of my favorite books of all time. It's uh, The Mythical Man Month by Fred Brooks. And the first chapter in that book is called The Tar Pit, and he talks about it 
you know, it's like large system programming projects being stuck in the tar pit. And he's like, yeah, for the past decade, the, you know, the, our industry has been stuck in the tar pit and there have been like huge projects trying to do their best to get out of it. And it's, it's not working. And then you think about it and it's like, Fred Brooks wrote this book in the 60s or the 70s. So even more than 40 years ago, we still struggle with the same problems. And that's why it's one of my favorite books of all time. What do you believe developers often get wrong when they're discussing technical debt, either within their own team or with, uh, say, their stakeholders? That's a good question. And I've heard a lot of your guests try to answer this one. And I think the main the main problem is that tech debt means different things to different people, right? Like technical people look at tech debt and they say, well, this is a problem. If this project has huge debt, it means that it's going to be hard to maintain it and it's going to be hard to move forward with it. But then non-technical people might think about it as in, well, you know, debt, like I have a mortgage and I got a mortgage to have a house and I have a house. So I'm paying my mortgage to have a house. So it's a good thing, right? Like it's enabling me to get something cool and something that I need to be paid off later. So, you know, to be honest, I come from Argentina and Argentina has had trouble with debt for years. So you grow up thinking that debt, all sorts of debt is bad. When I moved to Philadelphia about three years ago, my wife was like, no, you you need to get a credit card. You need to start building your credit history. You need to have some debt to you know, show the bank and the system that you're reliable and yada, yada, yada. So it's interesting that different people look at debt in different ways. And I think that happens a lot in our industry as well. It's like technical people see it as a bad thing. And non-technical people might be like, well, you know, there's debt in everything. So some debt is okay. What types of uh, examples have you seen? And you mentioned like uh, dependencies being a pretty common type of maybe technical debt. Do you believe there's a scenario where there's code that really doesn't produce or end up becoming technical debt or does all code eventually become technical debt in some capacity? Do you have a strong opinion on that? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And I think that it's best explained in this graph that Michael Feathers wrote about, you know, the churn versus complexity graph, where it shows different quadrants in the graph and it tells you a bunch of things about your code base. So every single module in your application gets qualified by how many times it's changed, churn, and by how complex it is. So complexity. Sure, there are some files that maybe are super complex, but don't change a lot. And yes, that is technical debt. But if it's not really changing, it's not really costing you money. And with this phrase, I'm actually paraphrasing Sandy Metz, who also wrote about this topic better than what I'm trying to say. But there is some technical debt that is okay. I think it starts to become a problem when you get to that quadrant where there are modules that are changing a lot and they're super complex. And what makes matters worse is when you add a third metric in 
terms of code coverage. If you have files that change a lot, are super complex and have 0% code coverage or 0% automated tests, then it's I think it's a huge problem. You spoke at RubyConf this last year in 2018. You had a talk that referenced the tarpet. I think it was called Escaping the Tarpet. You spoke about the benefit of trying to maybe define some metrics that could help guide a team out of, say, the tarpet and provide an introduction to one of your Ruby gems called Skunk. Can you share a little bit of background on your talk and what Skunk is? Yeah, sure. So I mentioned a little bit that the projects that we get are usually legacy projects and they're projects that need to be updated. And we need to really quickly evaluate whether we want to take on the project or not. And a few years ago, I found myself doing this over and over again, uploading the code base to Code Climate looking at the metrics, and then running SimpleCov on their test suite to calculate code coverage. And then I would manually cross-reference the data, like what are the most complex files? What are the files that are least covered? And then I would be like, okay, these are the main hotspots in your application. So if that list was huge, I would be like, look, there is something going on in this project. And I don't know if we want to take it on. So we would just say no to the client because of their tech debt. It was just way too much and they didn't have enough tests for us to work on. So months went by and then I thought, well, maybe we can build something to make it easier. Instead of like doing manually, we could write a gem that combines a couple of gems that are already exist. So Skunk is actually a combination of other gems. Yeah, so it combines Ruby Critic and SimpleCov. And Ruby Critic itself uses Flog and Reek and another gem that I can't think about right now. But it usually helps you calculate complexity and churn for every file. And what I wanted to see was basically the third dimension in the churn versus complexity graph. I wanted to see what if I added code coverage to the module, to every module, so I could see which files could have the the biggest problems in terms of tech debt. So Skunk was born for that. It was born for us to look at a code base, run Skunk, and quickly tell us what are the files that are super complex, change a lot, and have very little code coverage. Yeah, that's interesting. I want to quickly circle back. You know, you're talking about churn and complexity. And you, you know, I think you did a good job of defining churn there. And when it comes to complexity of code, you know, there's tools like Code Climate that can provide you some grading scales of some sort, you know, and they they will show you examples of here's a file and here's it's like a D because you here's some things it's noticing. You have some patterns of like maybe anti-patterns maybe in your code might be a better way to describe that. Things that are making that file in your application be perceived to be as complex for other people to be able to jump in and potentially work on it or create a mental model. Are there examples or recurring themes, I should say, in that you've noticed in Ruby on Rails applications that that you've noticed that teams are kind of have developed code in a certain way that seems to be keep popping up and repeating itself in a complex way? Yeah, when it comes to Ruby on Rails, we love the framework. 
most of the people that we work with follow the conventions and the rules that the framework tells you. So sometimes we do run into some problems when it comes to performance where, you know, there was a developer that included a bunch of queries in the views and stuff like that. The one problem that keeps coming up with Rails is, you know, they the initial idea was like, okay, fat, fat models, skinny controllers is the way to go, right? But at this point, we are a consulting shop that works with medium to big size companies. And many of them have huge Rails monoliths. So it is tricky when you get to a point where fat models and skinny controllers doesn't work anymore because it's grown, the application has grown so much that you need to start you know, putting things in different components and different engines. So one pattern that we've seen a lot is making everything a Rails engine. So basically separating models, controllers, and views in different components within Rails applications. So you can have the accounting component and basically it's a mini Rails application. And then you have the human resources component and that's another smaller Rails application. And that works very well when you have 40 software engineers that need to get organized to work and ship things every week. You can put a team, a small team of developers to do accounting and then the other to do human resources without having them touch a lot of like shared code base. And have you been in scenarios where you work with potential clients that have a very small team and have adopted those types of patterns and seen that work well for them when they don't say have 40 developers? I haven't really seen that so much in smaller teams. I think smaller teams are okay keeping everything in one big Rails application. So no, I, I haven't seen that so much. But we haven't worked with small teams in a couple of years. Uh, we used to work a lot more with startups about four years ago. But recently it's been happening that we work a lot more with like big teams of 20 or more software engineers working on the Rails application. Yeah, I think it's interesting. We haven't, in our company, we haven't really worked with startups in a really long time, but occasionally we'll work with companies that maybe a year or two into their life cycle and maybe other startup. And then, you know, they might be looking for a team to come in and they've had like two developers maybe working on their app, their like a new Ruby on Rails application over that period of time. And they've broken everything up into a lot of microservices or lots of like engines that are running in different repositories. And then so they're kind of like quickly becomes like, it's really interesting that they're able to do that, but it also feels like the complexity level of like, well, how does this all fit together when you're jumping between repos? And, you know, there's sometimes a benefit of like, say a monolith, even though it's maybe not a monolith after a year or two, but there's like, when does it make sense to break things up? Do you have a strong opinion on how early a team should start doing that? Yeah, I think it becomes important when you have more than two software engineers, I would say. I think there is value in separating some of the code base and different components as you start to grow. I think initially the main struggle is that there's only one or two developers. And the main problem that we see in those cases is that they don't have a test suite, or maybe they have a test suite, but they don't actively maintain it. 
maybe they're pressured to ship things every week and tests are not considered, you know, um, valuable code. So they're like, okay, just ship this and you can write the tests later. But, you know, as we know, later never comes. And then that's when we consulting shops come in when, you know, it starts to show because the team is just taking forever to do things and there are errors in production and there are regressions. And when that starts happening, yeah, you start to see that the lack of value from from tests like i mean sometimes we have to turn down clients ourselves because the rails upgrade projects that they want to do cannot happen without tests like we can't go into a project and basically take two weeks to learn about your business and about your features and yada 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 we can't do that because we are not very effective like that we need to have a test suite because that is our constant sounding board that's great so let's take a quick moment to talk about umbu labs what does your team specialize in? I know you talked about upgrades. What other types of services does, does your organization provide teams and clients? Yeah, so Umbu Labs started as just me freelancing. I think we have a similar story in that sense, right? Yes, we do. That's the first couple of years for me as well. Yeah, I started it because I wanted to build products, actually. So it started as, let's do consulting on the side so we can build this e-commerce platform for Latin America. And yeah, a couple of years went by and then we decided, okay, maybe it's time to focus on the consulting side and build products for startup clients. So we started building a bunch of minimum viable products for startups. And yeah, eventually we found that we are doing a lot of Rails upgrade projects for bigger size companies. And we thought, well, you know, we can launch our own service, our own productized service. And you can find that on fastruby.io. That's basically our Rails upgrade service. And I would say right now that is about 50% of our business is shipping Rails upgrades. And the other 50% is building products for startups. Nice. You know, given that you too run a, a software consultancy, I was would actually like to kind of pivot the conversation for a little bit and talk about a few things that are kind of near and dear to me. One of them is being a good guest in another team's code base. What do you believe are some important things to keep in mind when you first start diving into, say, your client's code base? I would say the first one is to not go in thinking that you know better than the team. You know, first, when I was younger, I used to criticize someone else's code base. And then, you know, it's unfair to the team. So we try not to do that, to judge the existing team, because we know that everybody has deadlines and timelines and goals and, and stuff. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that we try to leave the client project better than we found it. So if the client didn't have any test suite or they didn't have a stable workflow, what we like to do is share our own workflow with them and implement the patterns that we find work best for like small teams or medium-sized teams. The other thing that uh, it's more in our roadmap is to actually show the value in terms of the technical debt that we paid off since the beginning of our engagement. 
Skunk is actually in the roadmap for that. We want to have a metric that says, this was all the technical debt you had when you started. Let's say 27,000 points. Now we're leaving your project with 21,000 points of technical debt. So we want to, I guess that is the, the Boy Scout rule. We want to work on the project. We want to help you move forward, upgrade your dependencies or ship features and patches. But we also want to improve the quality of the code while we're doing it. That's great. I know you talked about, you know, maybe earlier on in your career, and, and I'm very guilty of this myself, and something I see in my team members at times when we're working with other clients, it's hard to, you know, to get, I think there's that growth phase of, or maybe a maturity phase where we go, oh, right, I, I have a little bit more context. I've seen like the stresses and the constraints that I've had to deal with as a software developer in the last five, 10 years that maybe in those first few years, it was very easy to point out and be like, that's, you're doing it wrong. You know, looking at being very critical, hypercritical of other developers, you know, it's always, it's, you know, it's not uncommon for developers to be like, what was this person thinking when they wrote this? I don't know. It's a good question. What do you think they were thinking? I want to write some shitty code. Probably not. And then it's like, I think as you go back and look at your own code as well, from several years ago, I, I mean, at least my experience is like, what was I thinking? You know, and like, or at least I hope that's what I'm asking myself on a regular basis. But, you know, in those types of engagements, have you had any any lessons you've learned or seen your team had to kind of go through and, and like struggles where maybe they needed to come through a process of realizing that they had made a mistake with that kind of client, you know, in some some capacity? You know, I used to to do that to to criticize the code and probably the the first times that I'd run git blame and it was like, oh, it was me. You know, that that made me shut my mouth next time. But yeah, in terms of onboarding and, and making sure that we're shipping valuable changes, but also like not making mistakes in the process is we like to have pairs working on every project so that there's someone writing the code, but there's also someone reviewing it and nothing makes it to production without a review. So the other day I actually found a piece of code that didn't make sense at all. And I was like, what? Like, how did this get to be merged to master? But then I thought, well, you know, it's not only the fault of the person who wrote the code, it's also the fault of the reviewer. And I'm pretty sure that I reviewed this code. So I totally missed it. And well, you know, that that sucks, but let's just go in and fix it and add a nice commit message that says like, well, this didn't really do what it was supposed to do. But yeah, in terms of reviewing and testing code, we like to kind of have at least one or two checks before code makes it to production. Nice. If you're up to it, maybe you could share a little bit about your team's kind of like a high level overview, what your team's pull request process looks like. I'm, it's, I think there's a lot of uh, documentation and, and things you can find in people's articles online about how to submit a pull request to your your team or what have you, like making sure you have templates or whatever in your GitHub or Bitbucket or whatever tools you're using. And there's also a lot of documentation around like how to be a good reviewer in some capacity. I haven't seen a lot of conversation or heard much about how to receive feedback from your peers, kind of like at that other part when you're kind of in that other phase of like, all right, you've had someone review your code and they're, they, prov you know, they provide some feedback on some changes. How do you 
navigate that? Maybe, maybe in a scenario where maybe you disagree with something. Do you have any advice to share with people and or reflection on what, how your team handles that? Yeah, I have a couple of suggestions. And as everything, this is a learning process for us. And I wouldn't say we know we know it all. We're actually learning from interacting with clients and also interacting with technical clients and working with our junior developer. We, we are still a, a small company, but we always want to have junior developers to work with so we can coach them and always be training them and mentoring our own teammates. One of the things that I think is great for code reviews is to have a an established code convention. So in Ruby, you can use Rubocop and you can use automated tools that basically make comments in your pull request when you missed uh, a space or something. I think I used to work in a team many, many years ago before there was Rubocop and before there was Hound and all that where there was this one guy, the senior software engineer that would basically be hound. He would just like comment on every single code convention infraction that I did. And I was like, I hate this guy. <laughs> so just have automated tools for that. You know, they're like, we're in an age that that can be done and you don't need to be commenting on other people's style guide. Just adopt one and go with it. And yeah, have discussions about the rules you follow. And then in terms of more like instructive comments, I think we want to make sure that the person who's submitting the code is, you know, we need to think that they have the best intentions and maybe they did it one way because the way that you think is best is not going to work. So when you go into a pull request and you start reviewing it, think about that and ask more questions than hand down commands. We don't have a guide right now to give feedback and pull requests, although we do have a guide to submit great pull requests. Like you can actually Google something like that, like Ombu Labs, great pull requests. And there are a bunch of things that we recommend every time someone submits changes. Like if you're submitting a front end change, maybe what you can do is include a, include a couple of screenshots to show what it's going to look like um, so that the reviewer can look at the code and say, oh, okay, this is what they're doing. And it's much easier to, to give positive feedback. I'll include a link to that, that article in, the, in our show notes as well. Speaking of developers, you know, I want to also quickly talk a little bit about recruiting, given that you Again, that you're in the software consultancy world, when you're recruiting developers who are going to be producing code and most likely be interacting directly with your clients' teams and maybe providing some technical consultation, what traits are you looking for in a developer? And is it safe to assume you're not just looking for someone that is really good at producing code? No, yeah, that that's true. Like we are a consulting business, so I I used to believe that. Actually, I used to believe that technical skills were critical. But these days, I'm more interested in soft skills, communication skills. A candidate being able to explain to me, like I'm five, how a request and a response works in a Rails application. So communication for us is key. 
being able to explain a concept, an architecture, a solution that it's in your mind to another developer is super important, especially because we are a 100% remote company. So you don't have a whiteboard to go and show what you're thinking. So you need to be a really good communicator. And actually, the other trait that we look for is hunger for knowledge. I know that's super hard to judge, to be like, yes, this candidate has hunger for knowledge and they're one to, they're so ready to join our team and start learning as quickly as possible and start shipping while learning. So that's something that I really value. And the best hires I've made were of candidates that were hungry to, to learn and to, to do things. And hopefully continue to do that once they get more into this career. There's probably um, some similar overlaps in some ways outside of in our stories and the types of work that we do. And you mentioned that you do hire, try to bring in junior developers on, you know, on a somewhat regular basis. Do you feel like you have good success with that and being around a mentor that? And what was some of the rationale behind bringing juniors in? Because I would imagine, and maybe maybe you don't have this internal conversation with the other team members, maybe senior developers, but it's been my experience that at times, historically, we would see when we would propose the idea of bringing someone that has you know, maybe maybe a year of development experience, if that, maybe six months, maybe they just finished a boot camp, and maybe having more senior developers being a little nervous about like, well, I'm going to have to spend a lot of time helping them get up to speed on things. And like that means I'm not going to produce as much code. Did that sort of thing happen at Umbu Labs? This is a tough question, actually, because we have failed a couple of junior software engineers in the past. The last software engineer that left us, she she left us after two years, but she left us because we failed her. We didn't provide the best environment for her to learn. So we're actually trying to change our culture a little bit and change our processes and goals to better support a new junior software engineer that we just hired. The one mistake we made with the previous one was that she had a bunch of learning goals and a bunch of milestones that she needed to accomplish. But in terms of the senior software engineers, we didn't make it explicit that they had coaching and mentoring goals. We now have defined that for everybody in our team. So if you're a senior software engineer in our team, you are expected to pair with the junior software engineer on a regular basis. And I don't want to hear it if if you are not meeting that milestone. This this is, it's a big deal if you're not coaching and mentoring our junior software engineer, because we need to train them and coach them to be the, the kind of software engineer that is great for us and for our clients. I think that, that's an important thing to go through. I think you know, I definitely can speak to, we've I would say we definitely failed some people and I think we've gotten quite good at it in some ways. But then, you know, even when you're, you know, I think we had a scenario even earlier, I guess it was about a year ago, we had a junior developer leave after about six months and I was, I was a little disappointed, you know, like, Oh no, like, what did we, how did we drop the ball here? But then, you know, I think we've also brought in some other junior developers that have been really successful here. So it's a, it can be a little bit of a challenge. I know that if you only have a few experiences of that teams can also be like well we tried that once it didn't work why would we do that you know this, this, we can't do that very well and it's like well we have to keep trying one of the things that we've 
kind of touched on a little bit was also how uh, internships being a big part of what we've done so that we're the team is on a regular cycle throughout the year constantly expected to provide mentorship and it also gives junior developers a chance to be a mentor as well. Yeah, I actually admire Planet Argon for what you're doing. I also have talked to other founders of consulting shops that are remote just like us and they are like Yeah, I'm really curious about that. They're like, no, you know, we, we just don't hire junior software engineers. So it's just like we're yeah, we tried with one, it didn't work, and we just decided not to. And I understand, you know, we all have our bottom line. We need to make payroll and everything. But this is a problem that, and this is a challenge that I want Ombu Labs to face and to get better at. Just because we failed two times before, it doesn't mean that we can't succeed. It means that we need to learn. And th that's one thing that's core for us. If, you, if you're not learning from your mistakes, that is unforgivable. So we, we need to learn from what we did wrong with our previous junior software engineer and implement changes. So we did have an exit call with her and we basically took a lot of notes on what went wrong and how we can better support new or uh, future software engineers. I think that's really great. I'll, I'm going to have to make sure I check back in with you and see how things are going with the idea of bringing in junior people that are remote because I don't know if you know this, but we're basically all on site at, at Planet Argon. So and we have people that work home like maybe a day or two a week, and, but they're but we're usually all in the office at one point. And so as we start exploring the idea of having our first remote employees, you know, as a default, I've been like, I'm not going to consider a junior developer as a first person to be our remote employee because I don't think we know how to work with remote people first, let alone how are we going to support a junior developer? Because I want to be very intentional about that. But then I also know that there's people that are junior developers that would that have been applying for us and like really interested in working with us. I'm like, I, I just don't feel confident that I'm going to be able to support you in the way that I think you are. Our team knows how to like notice when people is maybe hitting their head against the wall a little bit on a problem because they're at their desk or, or they've been working, you know, we can see that physically, or we can have that conversation over lunch or something and be like, Oh, I'll stop by and pair with you for a little bit this afternoon on that and kind of work through that problem. But like remote, I'm just like, it just seems like an alien thing for me. So I commend you for taking that that step out into that path. Yeah, no, it's it's true. I'm, I mean, being in the office with the junior software engineer is like, if they don't know what they're doing or if they have a question and they really need your help, they'll just, you know, stand or sit next to you and look at you until you help them. And that in remote culture is, I guess it can be a direct message, but it's not the same. Like people are not that comfortable just sending a direct message to me like, hey, can I get help with this? So it's uh, it's another problem with junior software engineers that are remote is like, how do you push them to be like, yeah, ping me on Slack, ping whoever, just like you're not bothering, you are here to learn. And if you're not learning or if you're stuck, we're here to help you. So yeah, it's definitely a challenge and I, I'm always looking for, for suggestions. So if you have any... Feel free to ping me later. All right, sounds good. We'll be back with our conversation with Ernesto in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to thank you for making time to listen to Maintainable. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers on social media or TikTok or Instagram stories, or maybe send a DM to an old relative you haven't spoken to in many Thanksgivings. 
and a writing review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Also, if you know someone in our industry who I should be speaking with on Maintainable, shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our conversation with Ernesto Tagworker. I want to kind of talk about a couple brief hypothetical scenarios to get some advice from for our listeners. I know we've talked a lot about Ruby on Rails specifically today, and but I think this question actually isn't specifically Ruby on Rails. Okay, it is a Ruby on Rails related question, but I think this can apply to everything. So given that you're focusing a lot on at least 50% of your business right now is on upgrade type related projects, and you turn projects away that don't have enough test coverage, what advice do you provide those prospective clients when they don't have enough test coverage on how they can go about improving a scenario where they have, say, brittle to no test at all and like knowing where to start. And maybe that's already part of their company's DNA of to like not knowing how to write tests, hence why they're reaching out to companies like you. Yeah. I think it's a deeper question though, because it usually means that the application, if it doesn't have tests, what we usually pitch to the client is like, okay, you don't have any tests. We can set up a test suite for your application and increase your test coverage every week. And we pitched it at least, I don't know, five times. None of them converted. So I think there is a deeper question there. And it's like, well, if they don't have a test suite, it's not just that they didn't have time to write the test. It means that their culture does not value tests. So it's hard. It's hard to advise them because if you tell them, well, you need to write tests and we're going to write the test for you, or you can dedicate a, a, one of your software engineers to do it, they're probably not going to do it. So the alternative then is building a QA team on their side and saying, well, okay, if you don't have a test suite, but you do have a team of QA specialists, what we can do is work on the Rails upgrade project if we have a dedicated QA person that tests everything we do. Now, we did this a couple of years ago and it worked very well, but it was for a pretty big company. So they had a big team of QA specialists that worked with us. But yeah, it's it's hard. It's hard to, to say like what is the best advice there because I think it's a culture problem that their application doesn't have tests because there's someone up the food chain that does not see the value. And you need to convince that person first before you work on their upgrade project. Do you think that, based on your experience, that that type of individual that maybe up the food chain is is someone that is or isn't technical focused and oh yeah definitely non-technical i think like technical people understand the the value and you want to get them on your side and of course convincing a technical person is much easier than a non-technical person maybe i'm just terrible at selling this test writing <laughs> solution it can be a, i think it's a tricky one and i think it's been my experience that sometimes you know, when we talk to people that say are a little less technical that are maybe up the food chain, their scenario is like, they don't really even understand, like, well, obviously our application is tested because we know it works. So our team must have done some testing, right? And and so I, usually what I find is that it is a culture problem, but there's usually like maybe some early on people there that didn't really, maybe on a technical side, that didn't really see that as part of uh, their definition of done on, say, writing a story or a feature, like, how do you know that what you just wrote is done or is works and consider it done? And so like, oh, if I'll do that if I get some extra time. Or maybe they ask for permission to write tests as if it's 
something you need to write as per permission with, but it's usually like those people that start off early off on a piece of software, making some of those decisions like, well, we started doing some testing, but maybe we disagreed on how we we're going to do it or the build broke and I didn't have the time to fix it. And then years pass by and nobody's really touched it again. I've always felt like it's been more of a technical person problem that they didn't know or they didn't feel confident enough to know that they were kind of going in the right path. Maybe they read a few articles about writing tests, what have you, but it's just like a, it's a challenge there. Yeah. I don't know. I think usually technical people are pressured to ship things. So, you know, yeah, maybe they think they just don't have the time to write tests and that's why they ship things. So I usually assume the best in, in tech people and that they don't write the test because there are pressures in terms of time and shipping things. And, you know, I'm a software engineer. I started software engineering and I've been learning about sales for the past 10 years or so. So I'm at a point where I can sell, you know, our software services. But I think in terms of test writing services or services that increase test coverage, I'm pretty bad at it. And I should just focus on the pain that the non-technical person is seeing, you know, they're usually seeing the application is slow, the feature takes like too long to be shipped and other things that are more like on the, on the front end facing part. So maybe the pitch needs to be about that. It needs to be like, well, look, your team is taking forever to ship this. If you look at your history, you're shipping about two story points every two weeks. If you add more tests, you can probably go to up to like four story points per week with the same team. So it is an investment in, you know, writing tests, but it will pay off if you keep doing it and you, if you keep the same team. So maybe that's what the pitch needs to be, to be about, right? Yeah, I think that's some, some good advice there. Do you currently provide any consultative ser services to help teams get better at maintaining that type of upgrade problems and technical debt stuff themselves? Yeah, I mean, in terms of like the test writing part, we don't offer those services. I've been trying to find someone that does it so we could refer work to them. But no, we don't do that. What we do is uh, we offer a couple of services in terms of upgrades. One of them is the roadmap so the roadmap is a very affordable package that people can get and they pay us $2,000. We spend a week and we look at their project and we tell them, usually it's for a Rails application. We tell them, you are on this version of Rails. In order to get to the next version of Rails, you need to follow this action plan. And these are going to be the major blockers in your project. And these are the things that you're going to need to ship before you flip the version in your gem file. That is an interesting offering because it kind of filters out the client projects or the clients who are like, $2,000 is a lot of money to get an estimate. So we don't want those clients, to be honest. Like, we want clients who... We call them tire kickers. I don't even remember where that came from in our our companies like Zeitgeist. But yeah, we do a similar thing where we, we charge up front for initial reviews or discovery phases or audits and things like that. It's usually like, this is, there's got to be an SOW right away. I'm only going to give you a very cursory, quick review of your code. Be like, okay, this is something we can at least 
spend, I want to spend time with our team to pull them away from other billable projects to really give you something valuable. So we don't do that for free either. Yeah. And they get value. And then, you know, after they finish that engagement, you know, it's usually like one week turnaround time, they get a report and then they can use it to shop around for other contractors. If we are too expensive for them, they can basically take that report and outsource it to somewhere else. And that's totally fine. We actually started charging for this because we would do it for free. And then there were some people who were like, oh, okay, this is great. We're already working on it right now. And we're like, oh, okay. So there's a lot of value here. You don't need us anymore. So we're recording this. I think it's late, late January, 2020. So this will be one of the first few podcasts of the year for us. You know, as you're looking ahead to the year, is there something in you know Ruby and Ruby on Rails that you're quite excited about that's coming out in the next year or so? Yeah, I'm actually really excited about Rails 6.1. Now that GitHub and Shopify and some huge companies are running the latest version of Rails, they're adding so many features that will make the new upgrades much easier for everybody. So I'm, I'm just really excited about that focus. They know like a huge company like GitHub needs to keep up with the upgrades and they're running close to master in production. So I've been seeing a bunch of changes that are making it to 6.1 that are going to be super interesting and they're going to make the upgrades much easier. So that means that you'll have more tools to make sure that you fix deprecation warnings right away. And once you fix the deprecation warning, you can add a snippet of code that just makes sure that nobody reintroduces code that brings it back up. So yeah, I'm excited about that, uh, about what GitHub can bring to, to the table with Aaron Patterson and Eileen Uchitel working uh, and contributing to Rails score. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? Yeah, so lately I work a lot on the, or I publish a lot of content on the fastruby.io slash blog page. I do have a personal website, which is uh, etacworker.com, but I think I publish the most content on Twitter. That's at etacworker, so they can follow me there. And if uh, you have any listeners in Australia, I'll be speaking at RubyConf Australia in February. So I'll be speaking about Skunk and Technical Dead and the Tar Pit. So I'm excited about that one. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds great. I've not uh, been to Australia yet or been asked to speak there yet. I haven't also submitted any call for proposals there yet either. But uh, will you be in Portland for RailsConf? Yes, I will be there. And uh, I'm excited to meet you. I owe you oh so many beers because oh my shell. I don't even know how to pronounce oh my shell, but I'll say oh my shell. I, I pronounce it oh my z shell. Yeah, I'm, I'm wearing, a, you can see in the, our little Zoom video chat, I'm wearing my OMAZ shell t-shirt today. So I'll have one ready for you. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you for talking shop with us, Ernesto. It's been such a treat having you on Maintainable. Thanks a lot for having me. It's been a blast and I'm super honored to be here. 